What if modern human beings are, relative to our ancestors and other creatures who share the earth with us, effectively insane? By modern, I mean the past several thousand years. We are a peculiar species for sure, with our languages and arts and religions. No doubt human fundamental technologies such as writing and logic and mathematics are upgrades to intelligence and planning, but at what cost have they come to us? It is most apparent from where we now stand in history that we are poorly suited to our conditions, chimpanzees and cubicles as I've characterized us before. But this contemporary standpoint might be the, might be the wrong place to scrutinize. What ancient developments in the ways of humans might have led us astray from the solid footing of nature into the chaos of culture? When did hominids in our lineage first begin to use language? We tend to think of language as an extension of vocalizations, such as those that birds and other animals make, the mating calls of frogs and reptiles, the warning cries of monkeys when they spot a predatory bird overhead. But an extension of this vocalizing behavior seems insufficient to capture the immensity of what must have taken place in our ancestors. They didn't just gain a greater vocabulary of communicative noises. No, they started to think differently. Narrative was born. And now, as you might notice, we are almost totally engulfed by it. We are carried away even by the narrative of who we are and what we are doing. Maybe even more fundamentally, we are carried away by the narrative that we even exist. For what is being but a continuity in time? Is it the past and the future which do not really exist? Or what if the real fiction is the present moment? I've shared before from Julian Jaynes's book, The Origins of Human Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, well, a recent conversation I had with a colleague got me thinking. To kick things off, I'll read a bit from the book. Jaynes writes, quote, The characters of the Iliad do not sit down and think out what to do. They have no conscious minds such as we say we have, and certainly no introspections. It is impossible for us, with our subjectivity, to appreciate what it was like. When Agamemnon, king of men, robs Achilles of his mistress, it is a god that grasps Achilles by his yellow hair and warns him not to strike Agamemnon. It is a god who then rises out of the gray sea and consoles him in his tears of wrath on the beach by his black ships, a god who whispers low to Helen to sweep her heart with homesick longing, a god who hides Paris in a mist on in front of the attacking Menelaus, a god who tells Glaucus to take bronze for gold, a god who leads the armies into battle, who speaks to each soldier at the turning points, who debates and teaches Hector what he must do, who urges the soldiers on or defeats them by casting them in spells or drawing mists over their visual fields. It is the gods who start quarrels among men that really cause the war and then plan its strategy. It is one god who makes Achilles promise not to go into battle, another who urges him to go, and another who then clothes him in a golden fire, reaching up to heaven, and screams through his throat across the bloodied trench at the Trojans, rousing them to ungovernable panic. In fact, the gods take the place of consciousness. The beginnings of action are not in conscious plans, reasons, and motives. They are in the actions and speeches of gods. To another, a man seems to be the cause of his own behavior, but not to the man himself. When, toward the end of the war, Achilles reminds Agamemnon of how he robbed him of his mistress, the king of men declares, not I was the cause of this act, but Zeus, and my portion 
and the Arinyes who walk in darkness, they it was in the assembly put wild Ate upon me on that day when I arbitrarily took Achilles' prize from him. So what could I do? Gods always have their way. And this, and that this was no particular fiction of Agamemnon's to evade responsibility, is clear in that this explanation is fully accepted by Achilles. For Achilles also is obedient to the gods. Scholars who, in commenting on this passage, say that Agamemnon's behavior has become alien to his ego do not go nearly far enough, for the question is indeed, what is the psychology of the Iliadic hero? And I am saying that he did not have any ego whatever, unquote. Before I comment, I'll skip forward just a bit and add one more passage. James writes, quote, Who then were these gods that pushed men about like robots and sang epics through their lips? They were voices whose speech and directions could be as distinctly heard by the Iliadic heroes as voices are heard by certain epileptic and schizophrenic patients, or just as Joan of Arc heard her voices, the gods were organizations of the central nervous system and can be regarded as personae in the sense of poignant consistencies through time, amalgams of parental or admonitory images. The god is a part of the man, and quite consistent with his conception is that the fact that the gods never step outside of natural laws. Unquote. In his book on the hypothesis of the bicameral mind, Julian Jaynes expresses several discriminable premises which are exemplified in the passage above. He explicitly claims that subjectivity or phenomenal consciousness is a modern post-lingual development which was not present in Homer or his contemporaries. He's not conducting a literary criticism as he talks about the writing of Homer. Rather, he is doing a psychological analysis of ancient people using the Iliad as a source. I think this is, in part, a brilliant approach, but in another part quite incoherent. There are distinctions which can be made that will establish perhaps weaker but more coherent hypotheses based upon Jane's. To begin, let's look at these distinctions. The first pertains to conscious will and voluntary behavior. In the Iliad, we can observe that the will is often that of the gods rather than the human characters. The gods take direct action in many instances, and in other cases, the gods give direction to the human characters. In the latter instances, James would say that these directions are heard by the humans and obeyed. Proof of this is here, for example, when Jane says, quote, The gods are what we now call hallucinations. Usually they are only seen and heard by the particular heroes they are speaking to, unquote. To see or to hear implies conscious perception. So which is it? Are the humans experiencing hallucinations during the events of ancient times, or are the humans having no experiences at all? Jane seems to want it both ways. I find the latter claim of no subjective experience in ancient people to be an absurdity. In the past, I more or less left Julian Jane's behind on this basis. But here, I'm inclined to explore some of the more plausible ideas that he brings up. Suppose that ancient people actually did hear and follow the commands of what they understood to be gods. Suppose that once language became a fixture in thinking as well as communicating, one or more internal voices would occasion to manifest in the mind. In this version of the bicameral mind hypothesis, we leave out any claims about phenomenal consciousness itself and suggest simply that the will of ancient people was directed or influenced by hallucinated voices. Let's call this the bicameral will hypothesis. 
What other ideas can we pull out of Jane's? Well, he makes the claim, based upon the speech of Agamemnon to Achilles, that ancient people had no ego. Here, the hypothesis might be that the self-construct is a new development of the modern human mind. Language makes this construct take shape and grip us in a way that was absent in archaic people. We will call this the bicameral ego hypothesis. I want to clean this up a bit so that I can make headway with it. Jaynes refers to the bicameral mind, and bicameral literally means having two rooms. So there are two parts of the mind being suggested. It is evident in later sections of his book that Jaynes means something like a part which speaks and wills and another part which hears and obeys. In general, this might map onto an input system and an output system, or a sensory system and a motor system. That's not really what Jaynes describes, but it makes sense to me. In fact, his book is called The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. I might suggest something opposite, that the conscious will on the one hand and the conscious ego on the other are establishments of two distinct sectors, rather than their breakdown. The innovation of the modern post-lingual minds might be to separate off by abstraction a me from an overall experience. This new ego, which comes into being, is a fictional construct or partition of a unified conscious being. This me is a willful and self-interested actor. Thus, human consciousness, somewhere along the line, became possessed of self-consciousness. Perhaps the ego is an illusion, but it has some useful consequences. That's the hypothesis, anyway. So, in the end, I have collapsed the ideas of bicameral will and bicameral ego into a single hypothesis, an origin of self-consciousness through the partitioning of a unified mind. This enables the production of narratives, the capacity for logic, and mathematics, and the creation of true technological advancements. But there's a downside, and it's a doozy. Before we look into that, though, let's take a look at situations in which people hear voices. In his book Hallucinations, Oliver Sacks has a chapter on hearing voices. In it, he writes, quote, Talking to oneself is basic to human beings, for we are a linguistic species. The great Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky thought that inner speech was a prerequisite of all voluntary activity. I talk to myself, as many of us do, for much of the day, admonishing myself, encouraging myself, complaining, and more rarely, congratulating myself. Those voices are not externalized. I would never mistake them for the voice of God or anyone else. But when I was in danger once trying to descend a mountain with a badly injured leg, I heard an inner voice that was wholly unlike my normal babble of inner speech. I had a great struggle crossing a stream with a buckled and dislocating knee. The effort left me stunned, motionless for a couple of minutes, and then a delicious languor came over me, and I thought to myself, why not rest here? A nap, maybe? This was immediately countered by a strong, clear, commanding voice which said, you can't rest here, you can't rest anywhere, you've got to go on. Find a, ba a pace you can keep up and go on steadily. This good voice, this life voice, braced and resolved me. I stopped trembling and did not falter again. Joe Simpson, climbing in the Andes, also had a catastrophic accident, falling off an ice ledge and ending up in a deep crevasse with a broken leg. He struggled to survive as he recounted in touching the void, and a voice was crucial in encouraging and directing him." Unquote. Apparently this is something which commonly happens in such emergencies, the hearing of an encouraging 
and commanding voice. It's quite the opposite of the accusations and persecutions which occur in schizophrenia. These are better described as demons than they are as guardian angels. In his book, Julian Jaynes addresses schizophrenia, hypothesizing that it is a relapse into the bicameral mind. He writes, quote, If we confine ourselves to florid, unmedicated schizophrenics, we can state that hallucinations are absent only in exceptional cases. Usually, they predominate, crowding in persistently and massively, making the patient appear confused, particularly when they are changing rapidly. In very acute cases, visual hallucinations accompany the voices, but in more ordinary cases, the patient hears a voice or many voices, a saint or a devil, a band of men under his window who want to catch him, burn him, behead him. They lie in wait for him, threaten to enter through the walls, climb up and hide under his bed or above him in the ventilators. Unquote. A bit later he writes, quote, now, one of the most interesting and important aspects of all this in respect to the parallel with the bicameral mind is the following. Auditory hallucinations in general are not even slightly under the control of the individual himself, but they are extremely susceptible to even the most innocuous suggestion from the total social circumstances of which the individual is a part, unquote. I see the connection, but I think Jane's idea is misguided. Imagine a clan or a tribe of early humans, prehistoric schizophrenics attempting to survive. Schizophrenia and other severe mental illnesses are clearly not reversions to an ancestral state that would be viable. The schizophrenic is not fit to his environment, even to an environment of antiquity. His thoughts are fragmented and confused, as are his behaviors. If he were a wild animal, he would not be in quiet pursuit of his prey. He would be cowering in the back of his den, gnawing his own leg off or striking at phantom pursuers with a bone club. It seems more likely, especially given how common schizophrenia is and how many different world cultures have it, that severe mental illness is a risk to having a modern human mind. In the arms race for great intelligence, mutations abound which tilt the system too far. Autism is a kind of example. The capacity to systematize is grown at the expense of social ability. Nothing is free. And perhaps the maximizing of narrative and linguistic reasoning, likewise, tilts toward chaos and the hearing of voices. Oliver Sacks writes, quote, Some researchers have proposed that auditory hallucinations result from a failure to recognize internally generated speech as one's own. Perhaps there is some sort of physiological barrier or inhibition that normally prevents most of us from hearing such inner voices as external. Perhaps that barrier is somehow breached or undeveloped in those who do hear constant voices, unquote. This is perhaps in better support of my own hypothesis, that ego consciousness is a post-lingual development. What do other animals think about? If the construction of narratives is a human innovation, do non-human animals really think at all? I'm not suggesting that they aren't conscious, that animals lack subjective experience, but do they have a sense of self, a narrative me with a past and a present and a future? Human infants lack such a construct. Psychosis doesn't admit to an absence of narrative, it's just that the narrative is out of control. A radio broadcast of the President's State of the Union address is believed to contain secret messages just for you. Everything is connected and meaningful. This is not the absence of narrative, but the spinning up of a super-narrative. 
Why are they always voices whispering or screaming in the schizophrenic mind? Isn't this connected to language and semantic thinking? It seems unlikely that pre-linguistic hominids would have had such hallucinations. Their substrate in the cerebral cortex is almost certainly those parts of the temporal lobe concerned with language production and comprehension. Those brain structures would not even feature in pre-linguistic primates. Religion, mythology, history, even science takes the structure of narrative. Statements of logic, if this, then that, even these are little narratives, cause and effect, the very basis of story. Not only do we live in a narrative fashion, taking the day in through its paces from this to that with purpose, we also have the ability to talk about it. We feel like individual selves living through an ongoing story, and we can tell stories about other individual selves. The self is thus the center of the world as far as we are concerned. Accepting the existence and value of other selves is like allowing that there are parallel universe just as real as the one in which we are situated. It's a belief about others, a prying hope that we are not alone. We are so sentimental that we value other creatures, one might argue, is to our moral credit. But notice how we value inanimate objects. This isn't just a book. This is my personal copy. This isn't just a guitar. This is the guitar I took on that trip that means so much to me. This isn't just cotton and string. This is Teddy, my childhood bear, and if you touch him, I'll kill you. Am I being just as sentimental and foolish in my attachment to Jesse? Am I insane? I started this discussion with the question, what if modern human beings are, relative to our ancestors and other creatures which share the earth with us, effectively insane? What I meant can now be made more clear. Having the capacity to produce and understand language might be part of developing abstract intelligence. After all, these sounds we utter and alphabetic characters we draw are not the meanings they convey. They are symbols for concepts. Moreover, the same process of symbolic thinking enables the creation of metaphors and stories, true ones as well as fictional. For the first time, the concept of self emerges, like the concept of the number zero, something unreal which is necessitated by theory. A wild beast is not hungry in the subjective sense. There is no I-beast which this can be said of. Rather, in the present consciousness of the creature, there is hunger, which is nothing more than the wanting of a meal. We can suppose that the beast is conscious and is thusly motivated to act according to its evolved nature. It is perfectly sane. But what of us, modern men and women? We understand ourselves to be responsible for our actions and even for our thoughts. We have a niggling conscience. We are always wondering why. I've spoken before of the apparent connection between ego consciousness and anxiety. The beast is not thinking about itself. It has no such concept to contend with. It cannot even recognize itself in a mirror. To the beast, there is a world of perception and action, nothing more, no implicated I. The construction of a self brings along with it tremendous power, but it is, in the end, nothing real to be picked out of the material world. Under sufficient stress, the construct will not hold together, and all manner of madness arrives. We humans are perhaps the immiserated descendants, fallen from a selfless garden with the sour taste of good and evil ever present on our modern lips. Mm -hmm.